Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In those ancient days, people believed that a woman's womb was like a field in which children grew. The child grew from the seed that was planted by the man in the field, the womb. So, although the woman's contribution was important, good soil produces a good crop, it did not include the makeup of the person in their minds. Anyway, a boy was, therefore, a carbon copy of his dad. Okay, they didn't have carbon paper and they never cc'd anyone in an email, but we know what that means. The boy would look different. Hey, he developed in different soil. But he was, nevertheless, identical in nature with his father. Okay, now to the Christmas story. Understanding this about their understanding, you can imagine the thoughts going through Joseph's mind. A boy whose father is the Holy Spirit. Sort of. <laughs> I mean, is your brain already spinning? <laughs> so try to imagine what poor Joseph had to process. Our point, though, today is that this has obvious implications to his understanding of who Jesus was and is. Indeed, of every person's understanding of Jesus in that age. But what would it be like to be a woman in that sort of mental and cultural environment? What happens if you have a girl child? It's not a carbon copy of the man anymore. Obviously, something went wrong. It's incomplete, defective in some way. So Hippocrates, the Hippocratic oath that doctors take is named after him, proposed that when the male seed didn't grow, the female generated a copy of herself. Thus, girls are duplicates of their mothers. Most philosophers of that day thought he was nuts. <laughs> but still, the point is, girls are just not as good as a real human. In fact, a Roman historian, a male, explaining why he was glad he was male, said it is better to be a dog or a slave in Rome than a woman. Okay. In most of the world, women were treated like cattle. They were bought and sold as property. Fortunately, it was much better in Israel. There are a number of laws in the Old Testament that specifically protect women. 
But still, the complaints some feminists have about the patriarchal society of America, they're laughable and comparable to life at that time. Life even in Palestine. Men ruled absolutely. But the love of men for their wives is a constant refrain in Jewish literature of the day. And Joseph was a good man. Understand, their society being what it was, he and Mary had probably never been alone together in any way for even a moment. They may have never even talked to each other. Not a single word. That's entirely probable. So he really didn't know Mary. He didn't know her heart. He didn't know what she understood. So can we know what she understood? Remember that in the very law that protected women, if Mary is found to be pregnant before the marriage, before the marriage ceremony, she can be stoned for adultery, killed. Sometimes, usually, they were just publicly humiliated, but she could never be married. If her parents didn't throw her out immediately, she would be without support once they did, once they died. No one is going to take in a woman who has a child born before she's married. It's not going to happen. No Jew would hire her and her child would be rejected by everyone. It was a tough, tough life then. Fair and honest. And it drove people towards right living. (laughs) But very tough. But leading up to that first Christmas, can we know what was in Mary's mind? Thinking about their understandings, and misunderstandings as to procreation, let's listen to this young teenage girl's experience, her introduction to the conception and birth of her son. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we've called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Please keep in mind Mary's last statement. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It's a truly astonishing affirmation of who God is and who we are as his creatures. Proclaimed by a young teenage girl. It's amazing. Understand that some of that day thought that women didn't even have souls. (laughs) In fact, there's a strange splinter group even today that says that. 
It's a really small group, but it's interesting. I even had a guy in this very building, a visitor, he only came once. He said, yeah, but women aren't made in the image of God like men are. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty shocked. But right now, understand that in that day, men around the world thought that women weren't truly and fully human beings. No one in Israel could say this, not if they had even a, the most basic knowledge of Scripture. But they were real sure that women were not able to grasp spiritual truths like us men, right? But this very young girl somehow had the faith to accept this enormous burden and to make one of the greatest and most succinct and deepest statements of faith that any human has ever proclaimed. But why a virgin? They could have had a son in the normal way. Theologically, is there any really, really any reason it had to be a virgin? Well, certainly, in their understanding, this would help them to grasp the truth that Jesus was the Son of God, identical in nature to his Father. Having God as his Father would make that very clear. But Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. But a man is the son of his father, grown in the field of his mother's womb, identical in nature to him. And yet Jesus claimed God as his father, and at the same time claimed that he was the son of a human, the son of Mary. And he was so obviously human. <laughs> that was the major problem for his opponents. You are human, you cannot be God. And they proved he was human. They killed him. God can't die, right? But Jesus died. Of course, then he rose from the dead, proving his claim. But they, they didn't yet know that would happen. And there's enough theology here to keep us occupied clear till next Christmas. <laughs> but what I want to talk about is what people of that time begin to think after Jesus rose from the dead about the virgin birth. To say it another way, what was the meaning of Mary? How does this relate to the conflict between the genders that still permeates our world? Did anybody have it right back then? Does anybody have it right now? To find out, we're going to have to go back a bit. Well, quite a bit. Clear back to the beginning. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Male and female, he created them. From the beginning, humanity was designed as both male and female. And yet, in Hebrew... There's only one word available to mean all of humanity, Adam, which translated to English is man. Man. I think it's wild that the first man's name was man. This is great. In Greek, the designation for the species is anthropos, which is where we get the term anthropology, the study of man. In other words, the designator for the species was also the designator for the male. In fact, most of us can remember when we used the English designator for the male as meaning all human persons without even blinking an eye. We didn't even think about it. But no matter what language does, God is very clear. Both male and female are created in the image of God. 
Every human being is a full human being, <laughs> independently from any other human being. That, are the radical feminists right when they say a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle? <laughs> Gloria Steinman repeated that a lot, but it was Irina Dunn who originally said it. If she meant to exist as a human, as a creature, she would have been correct. But just as we are independent creatures, we are also dependent creatures. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And a few sentences down, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Do you grasp the significance of those two statements? God made a male human at Adam, and after setting him up in the garden with everything in the world, except another human being, he said it's not good. So he created a woman. We were not created to be alone. It is not good when we are alone. We were created to need another human being. <sighs> but then there's that tricky bit. God really did create the male first and then the female. So the first thing he said about creating humans made it clear that they are equal. But the second makes it clear they are not the same. Gender, our sexuality, is the only first order created difference in humans. It's only one. It's not race, not socioeconomic stats, nothing. Gender is the only first order created difference in humans. So in his perfect innocence, it was not good that Adam was alone. He needed Eve. She was different than he was. Can two very different people be happy together? Well, yeah. I'm married to one. <laughs> anyway, they fit together perfectly. And then, and then the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan questions God. And then he calls God a liar. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. And he takes a piece of truth and fabricates the great deception of the ages. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. They would know evil. They already knew good. They already experienced good. But knowing evil wouldn't make them like God. There's a great difference in intellectual understanding of evil and the personal experience of doing evil. Adam and Eve are led into sin, putting themselves, their desires, above another. God, in this case. And what happened to their trust, to their perfect compatibility, that perfect fit they did have, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The only perfect husband and wife to ever walk the face of the earth and now they had to cover themselves. Question. They've always known intellectually that they were naked. What changed? Who on earth did they each not want to be seen by? without clothing. Don't miss it. There are only two humans in the world then. Moments ago, they were perfect. With a perfect relationship. 
and now they find it necessary to hide their sexuality from one another and from God. When God does approach them, they play the blame game. (laughs) That hasn't changed. (laughs) But God cuts right through it all. And in speaking to the woman, he outlines what will happen to all her relationships, indeed all gender relationships, from that point on. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In creation, women have been given a gift that men can only wonder at. The ability to bear a child. To bring another person into the world. And that would now be distorted. And he's not talking just about the birth process itself. The entire mother-child relationship would now be strained. Her desire towards her husband would be distorted as well. The word translated desire means a stretching or reaching out for something you want. Perhaps because you long for it. Or perhaps because you want to possess it. Control it. Sound like any women you know? God brought women into the world, or woman in this case, to provide relationship that Adam didn't have and couldn't understand without her. And now every relationship she had would be distorted and strained particularly gender relations. Did you notice the man's tendency in his behavior towards women? It won't any longer be one who naturally wants to work side by side with his wife. No, he will seek to rule, to dominate. And gender conflict has permeated human relationships from that time on. Even when God separated the children of Israel from the rest of the world, what was the sign that he gave them? Circumcision. Wait, what if a female wanted to be one of God's people? That's a good question. Yeah, she had to be attached to a male. A husband, a father, a brother. What? Well, let's let's now jump forward to the time of Jesus' birth. Would his birth make a difference? What's the meaning of Mary? Why a virgin? And what does her amazing proclamation of faith mean? Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. First, let's talk about salvation. Under the law, a woman had to be attached to a man if she wanted to be a part of God's people. So a natural question for the first century church was, does a woman have to be attached to a male to be saved through Christ? Reasonable question. And Paul answered it. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The three great dividers of human existence, race, socio-economical position and gender mean nothing when it comes to salvation. Anybody can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Anyone. You may have noticed that Paul wrote, you are all sons of God through faith. There's no other Greek word that will work. He means all humans. So he has to struggle against the language just to write these things. 
And as you may recall from the fruit of the Spirit scripture, it's listed later in that same letter, if you want to check up on it again, those living a Spirit-filled life don't have gender issues. It's nowhere on the list. But those who do the works of the flesh, listed in sad detail right after the fruit of the Spirit, suffer thoroughly with all sorts of sexuality issues. But the Spirit-filled life, indeed, salvation itself, is about eternal life. More on that in a moment. (sighs) We still live in this world, this life. And Paul really did say, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But I want you to note a few things. He does not say, husbands, make your wives submit. (laughs) Not in there. This is to be a voluntary offering by women to their husbands. And then Paul quickly writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in what way did Christ give himself? Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, but he also lived for them on this earth. The same world that we live in. Can I just point out, it's a man's job to take out the garbage. (laughs) Okay, well maybe not that specific task, but it's a man's job to serve his wife. As Paul ends that sentence, just before the one about wives submitting to the husbands, with these words, the sentence just before that one, he writes, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. In some way, we are all to submit to one another. Obviously, we are all also to love one another, not just husbands to wives. And yet, there is something in this world that requires Paul to say, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's something about loving and living for a spouse on which men need to specifically focus. There is something about submitting in respect to husbands that is especially important to which women need to pay attention. And yes, to carry it on, I believe this gender focus carries across into the church right after the section where Paul instructs Timothy with this statement, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, whether she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Immediately after this, he gives instructions on the qualifications of becoming an overseer. The primary function of an overseer, besides exercising authority, is teaching. How exactly the teaching that all Christians are to do differs from what overseers are to do is not so clear, actually. (laughs) But that there is a difference is clear. To cut to the chase, I think the scripture is clear. Overseers are to be male. And so we're clear. The words overseer, elder, and pastor are interchangeable in scripture. Well, the word pastor is almost unused in the New Testament as it regards this office in the church, but we use it to mean that. By the way, Paul next deals with the office of deacon or helper in the church where he clearly switches back and forth between male and female in the description. I think it's clear that scripturally mature women, spiritually mature women can be deacons or helpers in the church just as spiritually mature men can. And we should be clear in another way. 
and point out that brilliant, sincere Christian scholars whom I admire disagree with each other on these issues. <laughs> Getting our understanding of gender issues right is important, but it won't get us into heaven or keep us out. Uh, this is not as important as understanding that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, rose again, and will return to bring us to glory. That's important. All those things and many others are more, much more important than teachings than this. And I'm not going to get mad at anyone for disagreeing with me in gender issues. Uh, in fact, my brother-in-law, Sam, he's a wonderful man of God and a pastor. He disagrees with me in these issues. And I still love him as my brother in Christ even though he acts as senior pastor of his church and head of his house. So I rest my case. <laughs> well, no, I don't. Uh, well, I rest that case, but not another one. I promise to talk to you of the future, of our eternal life. Uh, there is some sort of order in our eternal life. Consider these scriptures. Jesus said, And behold, some who are last will be first, and some are first who will be last. Paul said of our efforts in this life, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, Jesus, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Some will have great rewards, some will be first over others. But it won't be based on gender. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead Neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither marry nor are given in marriage. This is a merism, uh, the combination of two contrasting words or phrases to in, refer to an entirety. The entire concept of marriage, submission and serving in love because of gender, will not exist in the new creation. Just as our salvation now is not based in gender, neither will our lives be there. It will be better. Much better. Right, is it time for a fun little side note here? I think we'll still have gender. I just think it'll be perfected uh, and expressed very differently. Uh, Mary may have actually been the beginning of the end of the gender conflict. Then again, many think we will move beyond such a simple concept into an existence that is so overwhelmingly sublime in nature to gender that giving it up for the poor form of life that we now live would be laughable. Whatever, for sure, it'll be fun to find out. <laughs> but for the moment, God gave us this difference in sexuality and the relationships that go with it for a purpose. When Paul taught about the husband and wife relationship that we just read some of a moment ago, he added this statement, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Uh, the way a man and wife are supposed to live should reflect the way that Christ and the church love and care for each other. If a marriage doesn't do that, then the couple is not living the way they're supposed to live. If they're not Christian, well, there's not much we can do for them, <laughs> except introduce them to Christ. But if you are, if this, this is supposed to be the primary goal of your marriage, how do you demonstrate Christ's love for the church in your marriage? Do you serve your wife 
like Christ served the church? Do you submit to your husband like the church submits to Christ? Do we demonstrate Christ's love for the church to this world? And if we don't, if we're not, why not? (laughs) But we won't need to demonstrate God's love for us in this way in the new life because, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we can see him as he is, why would we even want a poor substitute? (laughs) Why have a demonstration of his love for us when we have the real thing? But now, right now we have one primary job to say for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mary understood. Mary had faith. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's all. She willingly accepted all that God gave to her. And the meaning of all this did not escape those who came to believe. They understood the meaning of Mary. And just as Jesus became a man through Mary, all people can be saved through him. If you want to be a part of that, if you want to put the gender wars behind you, all of our desperate, distorted desires... You have to understand the meaning of Mary. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Are you truly ready to put all that is you, all that is yours, put it aside and say with Mary, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Father, we're astonished this young woman Obviously, you prepared her for this time and you picked just the perfect person for this amazing task. I'm reminded of the warning by Simeon that a sword would pierce her heart also. She had to go through a lot. But she did what she meant and she did what she said. She meant it when she said, whatever you say, Whatever you say, that's fine. I'm your servant. I'll just do whatever you tell me. Hmm. We all want to be like that. But the reality is we struggle. And I pray that you would give us strength and understanding and help us get to that point where we can truly say, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me, according to your word. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message, first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. If you'd like to support us so we can do more, well... You'll have to work at it. 
we have no one-click button for giving on our webpage, southbeachhope.org. We are a tiny church in a small town and simply cannot afford either money or time to set up such a thing. But at least with our modern technology and with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and anyone around the world. Hopefully, we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.